0: Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. This is a fun one. Award-winning director Dan Cloris in studio to talk about his incredible 20-hour film series called Basketball, a Love Story that tells the story of the history of basketball in 62 unique short story forms, over 165 exclusive interviews with the biggest names In the sport, and Dan and I get into a lot of it here. The process of making this series, the stories that define it. This is a lot of fun. Dan is the very, very best at his craft, and I think you're going to enjoy this pod as much as I did, and as much as you're going to love basketball, a love story. And I also want to give a shout out to my friend Tyler Trent. He's in Indianapolis, he's a student at Purdue. He's in the hospital fighting a really courageous fight against cancer. He is a big Pacers fan. Tyler's favorite as a Pacers fan, of course, is Dan Cloris' winning time, Reggie Miller against New York. I know he can't wait to watch this series. Tyler, we're thinking about you, man. Keep at it. Now here's my conversation with Dan Cloris. Welcome into our Manhattan studios today. Dan Cloris, the award-winning movie maker, screenwriter. Dan, how are you? Good, Adrian. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Basketball, a love story. We've all been hearing about this for a very long time. Uh, you've lived it for a very long time. It'll premiere October 9th on ESPN. It'll run on successive Tuesdays, except for Election Day. We'll see what that show's like. And <laughs> it is a 20-hour... 10 part documentary series. And to be clear, this is not a chronological history of basketball. I've watched, I think, three of them now. And each individual episode tells, you know, very divergent stories, different eras, men, women. You do get into every part of the game from historical moments to specific moves that players perfected to controversies. But it's really like 62 mini short films.
1: Yeah, Adrian, um, it's 62 short stories. It's as if you're opening a book and you're reading short stories. Uh, And it's based upon, and it covers, like you say, it's not a history. It's not chronological. The third scene in the first night is P.J. Carlissimo getting choked by Spreewell, And then we meet Naismith. I figured if I introduce Nate Smith first I'll lose half the audience. <laughs> so, but it's called basketball love story because my unwritten thesis and I and I'm sure you would agree is that basketball unlike all sports, perhaps soccer, but I don't know soccer well enough, you know, has from the early stages of a little boy's life and now a little girl it creates some type of obsession, some type of addiction to it, whether you're a great player, LeBron James or a Curry or a Kobe, whether you're a park player, a high school player, whether you're a kid calling talk radio all the time, whether you're going to games all the time. and And that type of obsession is a form of love, albeit not the healthiest form. So each of these stories – is a love story, and it's both sides of love. It's the, it's the joy and the wonder and the celebration, and it's also the loss and the disappointment and the betrayal. Uh, and it's a, covers the NBA, the ABA, college, Olympics, foreign, uh, politics, race, business, media, style, fashion, television. So it, uh, it, it allowed me to basically write 62 short stories, uh, based upon more than 165 interviews that I did, with uh, about 40 of them done by a superstar team that, that I put together.
0: And the thing, too, with basketball is, and it's why I've always loved covering it at every level, is they're all interconnected. That there's always just a couple degrees separation from whether it's a great European player and an NBA story, whether it's, you know, Pat Summit, and I love the Pat Summit, Gino, Ariema. Short. You got into both of them, but it kind of rolled into that rivalry. I was around covering UConn at the beginning of Oriema's climb at Yukon, so I've always kind of watched with greater interest in what he's done there. And that's the thing to me is that they all connect. You get into Bill Russell and the Globetrotters, and Abe Saberstein, who is this sort of mythical figure in history. He's you know, he imagined the Globetrotters and he they, they were the team in the world and I don't know that you want to give it up here, but but his recruiting inducement to Bill Russell was.
1: I think we should. Let's give everything
0: up. Yeah, (laughs) let's give everything up. There's no point how Abe Saberstein tried to recruit Bill Russell to the
1: Globetrotters. Well, you know, Russell had this fantastic career, 55 game wins in a row at San Francisco, wins two national championships, actually reveals in the film. Destroys the mythology that he got along with his coach, Phil Wolpert, who gets a lot of credit. Russell says, the guy didn't even want me to leave my feet playing defense you know? <laughs> and, he, and would condemn me when I did it. But nevertheless, Russell always, even from a young man point of view, and we show that growing up in Louisiana, uh, very uh, connected to the value of education and pride. So Saperstein comes to him and says, I want you to come to the Trotters. There weren't that many opportunities for African-American players in mm-hmm. the mid-50s. Most of them end up in the Eastern League. Of course, right. there's a quota system, which we explore. Right. And, 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 and Wilt things. Chamberlain's
0: career started in – with the, he played a year for the Trials and, first. And, and Wilt yeah. left Kansas after <clears throat> his junior
1: year, which we show that game. That's a big scene when he loses to North Carolina. Uh, but Zaperstein visits Russell and offers him $50,000, 1956. Olympic. By the way, he wins a gold medal in the Olympics to come – to the Trotters, Russell brings his father, Russell lost his mother when he was 12 when the father comes Saperstein offers him $17,000 so they're they're already hey we ain't doing this and then (laughs) Saperstein says to Russell, look if you sign with the Trotters, I'll make sure that every town you go to on the road, I will have this woman and he names the woman, an African American actress, meet you and Russell looks at him and says, "I will have nothing to do with a woman that you could hire to meet me," and that was the end of the deal. And then Saperstein approached Oscar, also, who was a year, uh, two years later than mm-hmm. Russell, and offered him the same money. But the, that's the mythology. I mean, the Trot is obviously at one point were one of the greatest teams in the world, mm-hmm. as, as were the Wrens. But but um, the mythology that every black player wanted to play for them is not true. John Cheney wouldn't play for them. Ben Job wouldn't play for them. You know, you, ha- you, you had to make a decision.
0: That era of player, and you get into the All-Star game where they, uh, they're uh they playing in Boston, let's see, it was... Uh, 64. 64. Uh, and I remember talking to Ed, Jerry West on the podcast a couple years ago, and we got into that scene. And it's been written about, talked about, but I thought you got into it there. You know, the greatest player's... Ever, right? Like Elgin Baylor, West, Russell, Coozy, right? Are all in the locker room and they're not, they essentially tell the league, if you don't allow us to unionize, if you don't allow us to have pensions and health benefits, we aren't coming out to play this game on national TV. And, uh, the scene outside the locker room, Heinson Tommy Heinzen literally tells, you know, a Boston cop, you stand at that door, you don't let any of these owners in. And these guys locked themselves in the locker room and are negotiating this, which is sort of the people have always talked about college athletes. If they were ever going to command change to the system, it's always sort of been fantasized. They would do it at the Final Four. They would refuse to walk out. They would get change. But it's really what that generation of NBA player did. And there was genuine fear in that room that our careers are over. They're going to blackball us for doing this.
1: Yeah, that story is known by some people. At the same time, the Marie Stokes, Jack Twyman uh, yeah. story is known by people. But I, my, my view was that those two things are absolutely positively linked. So that story is called Brotherly Love. And I begin it with the Twyman-Stokes relationship. And here's a great player. his rookie of the year three years before. He comes down with encephalitis, uh, commonly known as sleeping sickness, he, he wakes up and he's completely paralyzed for the rest of his life. And Jack Twyman, 23 years old, mm-hmm. 23 years old, takes care of him. They weren't even friends. They were teammates. Right. One black, one white. And Twyman was a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. So because of that bond, they created Twyman created the first benefit, the first benefit game, the the Stokes benefit at Kutcher's Country Club in Monticello, where all of these great players began to come in 1959 to raise money for one of their own. And that, to me, was the signal that we can take care of ourselves, that we need to take care of ourselves, that we don't need to be just teammates, we need to be brothers, and then... There was a players' association. Larry Fleischer set it up, but they were going nowhere fast, and the owners were putting them off. So in 64, Boston, snowy night, all-star game, first time ever on network TV, first time ever on network TV, Heinzen and Oscar led the effort, all 24 players in the locker room, and we're going to go on strike. And the owners and and the PR guys are pounding on the door and the commissioner, Walter Brown, pounding on the door and threatening them. And Auerbach, who, you know, obviously one of the greats of all time, great coaches, great leaders, great thinkers. But Auerbach is threatening them. It's in Mm. Boston. Walter Brown and Bob Short, the owner of the Lakers, comes into the locker room. Hey, you Laker players, you better get your ass out here. Elgin and West. And they're young men. Yeah. They're young men. And good friends, and he says to them, if you don't play this game, you'll never play an NBA game the rest of your life. And West on camera, my God, I mean, look at the fear. He says, my God, I, I thought I'm going to have to do something else with my life, and I don't know what that would be. And then in the film, Heinsen uh, says – and then Elgin turned around to Bob Short, and, Ru- and I cut to Russell, and Russell says, Fuck you. <laughs> Five minutes before game time, man. They get their deal, they got a pension, they got – they're recognized <laughs> as a collective bargaining uh, unit and they go out and play the game and things obviously changed for the better. I've shown Michelle Roberts this scene and she and her group have flipped out and they're yeah. showing it to all the players and all the leaders. Yeah. I mean and, and as it should. It's And Stokes, my God, he died at 38 yeah. and, and what – If if, what if Maurice
0: him? Stokes – it was always believed if Stokes is healthy and plays his career – That the Cincinnati Royals may be the dynasty of that era, not the Celtics, or they would have went back and forth, right? It could have been. I mean, Stokes was
1: a whore. Someone describes him in the film. I never saw him play, but Stokes described him some type of Charles Barkley, uh, Elgin Baylor. But that team would have had Stokes, Oscar, Twyman, Lucas. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had another guard named uh, Bachhorn, and they had Adrian Smith and Connie Durking. That could have been a legit... They definitely would have
0: maybe won. Maybe. Who knows? Dan, who, who surprised you? Um, 165 interviews and you see it. It's pretty dramatic when you watch the trailer for it where you have each individual introduce themselves. I'm Kobe Bryant. I'm LeBron James. I'm Jerry West, Shaquille O'Neal, whoever it is. And, and you see the litany of figures that sat for this. Who surprised you? And saying that, boy, we got way more out of them than we thought or or maybe the opposite. You know, so many. It was, Adrian, one thing I learned,
1: these people know their craft, man. And if they're comfortable, that was my job to make them comfortable. And then to try to get what I wanted out of them because I went in in terms of I knew the stories I wanted to tell. But I was floored time after time after time. I mean, like, yeah, it's cool, man. Like Bob Cousy, of course, is uh, even in his late 80s, is is more or less a genius about the game. But Kevin Durant, I went down to Oklahoma City and interviewed Durant for, it was supposed to be, you know, I interviewed Russell for five and a half hours, Oscar (laughs) for six. You know, these contemporary guys, you know, I'll give you 30 minutes, you know. So I got 35 minutes from Durant. But it went for an hour and his knowledge of the intricacies of the game was terrific. And he knows the history too. But I love that guy, you know, and put aside, we all know that Kobe knows the game. So he was great, Mm -hmm. you know, great. But so many people, my first interview on purpose was Jack Ramsey because I knew that Jack Ramsey, God bless him, was ill. So I went down to Mm -hmm. Naples, first interview, four hours in his home, his body is cancer-ridden, he can't stand, and his mind is 95% there, and it was fantastic because, I mean – he was the creator on the East Coast. People credit Wooden on the West Coast with developing the 221 full court press. But Ramsey was doing it at St. Joseph's the same time that Wooden and his assistant were doing it at UCLA. So to go into that, to go into his systems at Portland, mm-hmm. you know, to go, and, and Ramsey was not a Wilt fan and he, well, he wasn't holding back. And he told me a great story that's, that's in the film, mm-hmm. I think. When Russell became the player coach, Adrian, in 68 for Boston, Will, always competitive, goes to Philadelphia owner and said, I want to be the player coach. And Ramsey says, but we, but I'm the coach. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they make an agreement that Will will become the coach of Philadelphia and Ramsey will be his assistant, i.e. the real coach, right? So Will goes to LA to play volleyball and hang out for a couple of weeks before the season starts, he calls the owners and Ramsey, who's also the GM, and says, I'm not coming back to Philadelphia. I want to be traded. And that's how he got traded to the Lakers. So
0: there was no love lost o- right. over there on that one. <laughs> you mentioned Russell, and I, I don't know if this is anywhere, if this scene is anywhere in the 20 hours. It always stayed with me, and I always thought one of the incredible moments of restraint and Knowing that time and place in history, Bill had to show this, I'm sure, every day, all day, everywhere. But when Bill becomes the player coach of the Celtics, and a white reporter in Boston stands up, and essentially asks him about the idea, is a African American, he didn't use African American, is an African American athlete smart enough to do this? I mean, essentially asks that question of him, and uh, uh, and it just was a reminder of the climate in which Russell played, lived in Boston, and, and became a coach, a player coach. Well,
1: you know, Russell was so magnificent. It was such a pleasure to be with him. And he could be completely different, of course, you know. But the most stinging thing about that time period, which is in the film, is that here's Russell who is responsible for the Celtics dynasty, right? And I have fun with it, with him and back. I go to a Nat King Cole song there. But I have 102 songs in the film, which are pretty cool. But um, when Russell leaves his home one day, some uh, Bostonites came, broke into his house, and defecated all over his home. It's in the film. <clears throat> it was so painful, so painful, that he barely ever spoke about it. But his teammates, white and black, were just in shock. And Russell and Auerbach would frequently have conversations because Auerbach was another outsider, the Jew. Even though the league was filled with Jewish owners and some coaches, Boston was a tough city. And Russell says to Auerbach, well, how do you handle it, man? And Auerbach says... You just got to beat the bastards. You know? mm-hmm. But Russell w- was an island to himself. So, so uh, just such a proud man from an early age. You know, named after the president of Southern University by his mother. You know, um, I loved Russell, and I didn't know him. I knew, I knew his daughter. But what a struggle! But the best part of that in 1957, his first win. The Celtics finally win. And this is in the film. I don't know if you saw this part. I have a big scene on their finally winning. And it's the seventh game in St. Louis. St. Louis has Pettit, Hagen, Lavellet. It's a great team. Slater Martin. Seventh game goes into double overtime. Pettit has 38. Cousy describes Pettit. He was unstoppable. Hagen was a horse. You know, Lavellet was knew all the tricks of the game, right? All these guys in the hall of fame. So, uh, not that Lavelle belongs in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if he, you know, but but last play, Boston is up two. St. Louis has the ball, ninety-four feet away, four and a half seconds to go. It's in the film. Player coach Alex Hanum six-seven puts himself in, designs a play. They got to tie it. There's no three-point shot. He's going to put himself in. He puts Pettit at the foul line. This is the play he calls. It's in the film. No one knows this. He's going to throw a baseball pass, Hanum. 94 feet. It's going to hit the backboard. It's going to bounce into Pettit's hands at the foul line. He has 38. He's going to catch it, make the basket, two points, tied. Tied. So I got everyone in. Heinsohn's talking about this. coozy Russell, Hagen, Pettit, they're all describing it. Alex Hanum throws the ball 94 feet. It curves. It hits the backboard. It bounces into Pettit's hand. Pettit grabs the ball <laughs> and misses the shot. And that's the story. Of the
0: Celtics win their first right. time. <laughs> then you asked LeBron James about the decision. Yeah. What, what did he say about it?
1: I asked him uh, when did he begin to understand that the way he did that was a mistake. That's the way I phrased it. And, and he said that once the season began and all the abuse that was heaped upon his teammates and his family live, that's when he began to comprehend, oh, boy, I shouldn't have done it that way. But that was a colossal mistake. The, the, the penalties don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. nor should it, mm-hmm. nor should it. You know, I mean, like it's an agent trying to make a lot of money, you know not not his agent you know but someone someone trying to make money i, I even though this film is on espn i mean they 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 were they were really really a big cause of blame mm-hmm. here and they, and they admit it mm-hmm. you know they admit it i mean it was just a but someone describes uh, the set in the film, as looking like a hostage crisis, which is true, <laughs> and then someone else said, "Yeah, look like with all these white kids in Greenwich, Connecticut, in the background, and look." And someone else
0: says, "Yeah, look like the set of Howdy Doody." So I cut yeah. the footage of Howdy Doody. But the, and the one kid who was there that yeah. day, Donovan Mitchell, of the Utah Jazz, was in because he grew up oh, around he grew up there. In Connecticut. His dad worked for the Mets, yeah, and he was at the decision. He was outside of it because oh. he was a kid running around that day, which oh. is. Um, pretty interesting. I, I mean, it's
1: a it's a really great scene, and uh, I have a whole bunch of stuff on LeBron, including when he comes into the league. And this part, I I didn't know the intricate details, and I mean, but but his he has a couple of teammates that that were abusive to him, and and made him feel very much like the outsider, and limited his freedom. And it was, and Silas was the coach and was trying to take care of it. And and, and only when they got rid of those guys, one in particular, who's that guy? Um, talk, um, I forget his name, big time shooter, but a veteran. But once they got rid of him, the next year, then LeBron was able to blossom.
0: Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by MasterClass. Steph Curry's MasterClass is a once in a lifetime opportunity to learn from one of the greatest shooters and NBA history masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. In over four hours of movie quality video lessons, Steph will teach you perfect shooting mechanics, footwork and scoring techniques, break down specific drills that will make you a better ball handler, analyze NBA game footage to improve your basketball IQ. In addition to Steph's class, you can choose from classes taught by over 35 other masters, including Gordon Ramsey, teaching cooking Malcolm Gladwell teaches writing, and Ron Howard teaching directing. New classes are always being added across a wide range of fields, such as music, cooking, writing, film, and many more. Whether you are pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a master class just for you. MasterClass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. And now, listeners to the Woj Pod can get Steph Curry's class. Or unlock access to every Masterclass for a year right now at Masterclass.com slash Woj, You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's Masterclass.com slash Woj for unlimited access to Masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at Masterclass.com slash Woj. Kobe, Shaq, Phil—that to me is still one of the. It's the Lakers, and it's you know after Showtime, after the Showtime era, it is the one era that I think still draws the most, maybe the broadest fascination. What, what did you learn about those three and that time and place? That that was a fun scene. It's a
1: long scene. It might be the longest one in the film. That 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 relationship. Look, it's um. There's no whole bars in the story that I'm telling. I mean, none. I mean, Shaq talks about Kobe going to quote his boy in the media, Jim Gray, after Phil told him, cut it out, finally. And I'm sure Phil psychologically was instigating some of it in his own way, you know? Like, let these guys be angry. Even if they're angry at each other, sometimes we'll play harder. Okay, coaches, you know, half-shrinks anyway, right? So, but at that point, when Kobe went on air... And spoke to Jim Gray after they were both told to shut up. Shaq calls him up and says to him, when you come down to practice, I'm going to kill you. And then I cut to Kobe and someone else, and he said, yeah, yeah, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. They had a call up. Brian Shore was in Denver to fly down L.A. and <laughs> to make sure that right. Gary Payton and Malone were there to break it up because they were going to go at it. But what is that? That's immaturity on both of their Parts. Kobe was a child what is he he's 18 years old but but and, and and Shaq it was very important to Shaq very very important that he be acknowledged and feel like this is my team that was very important mm-hmm. and for whatever reason uh, he felt Kobe didn't buy into it he probably didn't i mean i mean who's more focused uh, uh, than michael jordan and kobe bryant probably no one and russell right right yeah so they really did not like one another, and the idea that they won championships playing that way is a credit to everyone so it's that triple triangle that triple triangle but but Jack is hilarious in the scene also I mean like you know like you're talking about like when he has bad games and and people are on him and he has to listen, remember the voice of his grandmother and go to his safe spot. You know, Jackson would say that to him too. Go to your safe spot. He says, so my safe spot was what my grandmother taught me. I get a Haagen-Dazs-Valor ice cream and Entenmann's cake and I <laughs> eat it. But then Kobe would say in the film, he says, look, man, you know, that fat fuck, I come in the, <laughs> the locker room, he's eating McDonald's on the train's table. He's got this mysterious toe injury, you know. That's not Kobe.'" In the end of that scene... And I like this, and I think people are going to really dig it, man. I end it with the Kobe Bryant retirement ceremony. Mm -hmm. And then I cut, and I use this great song, and then I cut to the brief seconds of the retirement ceremonies of many other great ones. Because to me, it's not merely retiring from basketball. It's your next stage in life. It's the end of something where you're the greatest. Now I'm moving on. So it's Will Chamberlain walking on a court with his mother, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Bird and Magic and Barkley and Koozie and Havlicek and uh, and Earl Monroe and Willis Reed. Their retirement ceremonies, and then I end the scene with Kobe and Shaq at Kobe's thing, giving the big hug. Um, but it meant a lot to me to do that. And there were people at ESPN. Oh, cut that! Cut that! No way, I ain't cut that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kobe's Kobe's final game, and I was there in LA that day, and it was it was perfect. It was for the people who loved Kobe, it was the case they could make for Kobe, and the people who hated him, it was everything they said was wrong with Kobe, the excess. The for both sides, because he in, inspires such passion on you know pro and con, and he he it was perfect. Kobe, he gave plenty. of... To make each case that night. Yeah.
1: You know, I'll I'll ask you a question because
0: it reminds me of when I interviewed Chris Paul and,
1: uh, you know, who who is very close to LeBron James. And and he taught me something. Well, he actually taught me a lot. A lot. But the thing that he taught me, I like Michael Jordan, right? I love LeBron, but to me, if I'm going to have one game, I'm going with Michael Mm -hmm. Jordan, right? And Kobe is – if you think about assassins, Adrian, what are there really? Seven or eight in the history of the game, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Real assassins, you know? Sam Jones and, you know, Bird and... So I asked Chris Paul, I said, I said, I don't know about LeBron in terms of Kobe and Michael Jordan. I'd rather have the other two. And he said to me, and he's right, he says, no, no, you don't get it. <laughs> the correct comparison is LeBron to magic. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know? That's the thing. You're right. He's not Kobe or Michael. He's much more of a giver. And then that enlightened me and I and I began to watch him in a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It's true, you know? The other thing Chris Paul was great about, I have a scene called Signature Moves where he describes his signature move, which I define as making a steal. And I coach AAU for many, many years. And man, did he teach me stuff. He's the one defender on a two-on-one fast break, and he's at the foul line trying to defend it. And he says, where, where do I put my hands, Adrian? Where do I put my hands? Do I put them low? Do I put them high? I'm looking. I never even thought about that. You know, He puts them high. Why do you put them high? Because if his hands are high and the guy with the ball at one lane, he's going to make the low pass. He's tricking him into making that pass on the floor, that bounce pass. Mm-hmm. So now he'll know, now I get my hands down. Right. If they're low, it's the alley oop. That's pretty smart.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, people know you from, yeah. you know, the Emil Griffith story and yeah. the boys of Second Street Park. And then I think more recently, you know, Black Magic, uh, certainly, and, and Reggie Miller versus the Knicks, which yeah. was sort of the. Being a New Yorker, having grown up here, lived here, yeah. that rivalry, that Knicks-Reggie-Indiana thing was, you know, a unique time and place. This project, has this been one that was sort of always hanging over you, that in some form I'm going to do this and I've got to find the right outlet? That is this one that's been sort of in the works in your mind for longer than maybe even you knew?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. Thank you. Um I wanted to do a ten-hour five-part film on the game many, many years ago. I went to Adam, and he said, "Yeah," because at that point, I think he he was in charge of NBA Entertainment. This is a long time ago, maybe fifteen years ago. And then uh, I went to Jeff Zucker, a friend of mine, who was in charge of NBC, and they said, "Both said you got to meet with Dick, Dick Ebersol." So I went up there. I knew Dick, you know, one of the great television executives of all time. and and always a gentleman. And he was great because I didn't even know he turned me down. He walked me out of his office, had his hand off my shoulder, and it was a no. I had no idea. <laughs> I said, oh, boy, that's a smart guy. <laughs> so I went, I don't know what, I might have done Crazy Love after that. And, and I went to Skipper, back to Skipper. And he said, yeah, we'll do it at ESPN. We'll do the 10 hours, five parts. I started reading, reading, reading the first part of any – any project is the research, no matter how much you think you know, you don't know anything, right? You know, mm-hmm. and that's for sure. And, and, um, I did a lot of research and he calls me up one day and said, I'm sorry, Dan, um, we don't have the money. And I, he says, but we want to do something with you. So that's how black magic came mm-hmm. up. And black magic was four hours, not no commercials, won the Peabody. And was the Genesis for 30 for 30 was the complete Genesis. Cause they weren't doing docs. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't want to do anything else in sports. There's no way in the world, no way. But they came to me about uh, doing something for the original thirty for thirties, and like anything, and I'm sure it's with you too. Images and memory mean everything, right? Think about it. When you're a little kid, you know, mm-hmm. like the music you listen to when you're a little kid—that's the favorite music, right? When you're a teenager, right? So, so I ha- had this image of that photo. Donnie Walsh sent me the photo over the Nick fans behind the bench when Reggie hits one of his shots the shock of everyone the faces on everyone i mm-hmm. wanted to do a film on the photo <laughs> just a photo right but then i was talking to Connor Shell a bunch and and it evolved into the rivalry and but curiously i mean i grew up a Nick fan and i was at that game but i'm a Donnie Walsh fan first mm-hmm. So I rooted for Indiana. My wife, all season, every time Indiana comes in, I'm rooting for them. My wife is rooting for the Knicks. I mean, everyone around me is rooting for the Knicks. I left the garden in disgust. (laughs) I walked down to 7th Avenue. This game is over. The Knicks win this game.
0: (laughs) I was in the upper press area with Seth Davis. I was working in Waterbury. He was working in New Haven. And we said, "Well, well, you know, you try to leave early to get down so you're outside the locker room. So we were in the hallway outside the locker room when all this happened and just remember the Pacers running through Reggie go, what, what we missed it too. We like, I was there, but I can't, we all, he and I always laugh about that. We see we, we were there, but we never saw it. Yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story though. So now, okay, well, this
1: part isn't funny. I still don't want to do another thing in sports. No way. I had a couple of ideas. I doing something in South Korea on, but I had a, a crisis in my life five years ago, like a bad crisis. And I needed a distraction, like a real distraction. So I felt like a long-form thing could do that. I went back to Skipper, and he said, yeah, we're in. Ten hours, five parts. As soon as I started working more, I said, I need another two hours. He says, you got it, right? (laughs) Now I go out to L.A. with him and Connor and uh, one of my producers, and we're in his car, and Skip, a, a North Carolina guy, right, bleeds blue. University of North Carolina uh, says to me, uh, you know, even though I went to North Carolina, I have a favorite player when I was a kid, and uh, and he wasn't North Carolina. He went to NC State. I'm sitting in the back of the car. David Thompson. No. no. <laughs> so I said, I'll tell you what. I have nothing to lose. <laughs> man. Mm-hmm. If I guess this player, you give me another two hours. <laughs> he's driving. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Eddie Biedenbach. You ever hear of Eddie Biedenbach? Yeah, yeah. Became a good coach. Became a pretty good coach. He almost crashed the car. So it became 14 <laughs> hours. Then I got another six because I can't finish this. <laughs> right? So, but once I got started, it, it, it was just wonderful. It takes me, Winning Time was a 75 minute film, Adrian. It took me two years from the beginning to it was over. Mm-hmm. It's 20 hours
0: did it in four and a half years. So I need a vacation, man. <laughs> Today's episode of the Woj Pod is also brought to you by Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar, for your TV and newest addition to the easy-to-use home sound system. Play everything you love. Enjoy music, radio, movie, TV, podcasts, and more. Sonos supports over 100 streaming services. Use AirPlay. To enjoy sound from your iPhone or iPad on Beam. Brilliantly clear sound. Beam fills the room with rich sound. Enjoy deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. Easy to set up. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord and syncs with your existing remote. The Sonos app walks you through setup step by step. Amazon Alexa is built in. Get hands-free control of your music and more. Start a playlist, skip tracks, and pause simply by asking out loud. Use your voice to turn the TV on or off and adjust the volume. You can also play games, set reminders, and check the news. Connect Sonos speakers over Wi-Fi anytime. Put speakers in different rooms and listen to music in one and a podcast in another, or send sound from your TV everywhere so you never miss a second of the action. Create the ultimate entertainment center when you pair Beam with a Sub and two Sonos Ones for truly immersive surround sound. Sonos speakers are simple to set up. You probably can do it. But if you're like me, well, it's just easier to have the folks from Sonos come to the house and they'll send someone right out. Just order from Sonos.com and select Up and Running at Checkout if you qualify. The Sonos sound is remarkable. It's going to change the way you watch sports, movies, TV, in your home, just like it's done mine. So go check out Sonos today. Who moved you when you sat for interviews and you got into, you know, a lot of guys, you said some very sensitive subject matter stuff that either they hadn't talked about or hadn't wanted to, but we're doing it now, or got emotional over. Who got you emotional listening to them? Pat Riley made me cry. He made me cry. I
1: mean, real tears. And I interviewed Pat Riley for winning time because, of course, he was the coach of the Knicks. And he, and as you know, I mean, what a phenomenal memory. Oh,
0: my God. You know, Van yeah. Gundy's the same thing. Yeah, oh, Jeff's you know? I mean, memory both, is Both incredible. of them. They don't forget anything. Both of coach, yeah. Nothing. Great coaches. Great remember. coaches. They, nothing. They, nothing. Zero. Yeah. So, like,
1: I didn't know what he felt about winning time. I saw him at the NBA Tech Summit next year I intro you know of course he doesn't remember me I introduced myself and I said well you know I did that film Winning Time you you were great and he says come here he takes me to the corner right I said did you like it this is funny he says let me tell you something man I like the
0: film <laughs> I hate fucking Reggie Mill he <laughs> <laughs> should have done a film on me <laughs> as you say he, Pat's not in this to be the foil right <laughs> Pat's not in it to be the foil so, who lost yeah.
1: so when I interview him for this I mean, they're just great in Miami. They're great. I really liked that PR guy, you know, and uh, he, he, he was very helpful. I sit with Riley for two and a half hours, and we're discussing a lot. His relationship with his dad, Rupp, and issues of race and Kentucky and, the, you know, obviously the Lakers and the transition into him coaching and the rivalries, but I wanted to do a scene always, and I was doing it. It's called Joy Versus Relief, Adrian. When you win as a coach, when you finally win,